Hello, and welcome back to One Conversation, the podcast where we believe one conversation can change a life. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to hit the follow button. Also, give us a rating. We'd love to hear from you. Enjoy today's episode. Hello to all the listeners out there. My name is Lisa. And we are here in the month of February already. Um, Is anyone else thinking that the whole month of January just kind of flew by already? (laughs) This year seems to be moving, I don't know, pretty fast. But regardless, we are in the month of February, which in the prevention world is Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month. In this episode, I'm going to talk a lot about teen dating violence. So we're going to be discussing how we define teen dating violence, some indications that someone may be in a violent teen relationship, how we can spot that as adults. But more importantly, we're going to talk about how abusive teen relationships can create either an immediate or a lifelong impact. So before we jump in, let me just make some disclaimers here. First and foremost, listener discretion is advised as I'm going to be sharing some definitions, uh, talking about some examples of abuse. So please just take care of yourself during this episode. Also, I just want to make a clear note that although I'm going to be talking about some of the repercussions of teen dating violence, either immediate or across the lifespan, this does not mean that everyone who experiences teen dating violence will go through some of these things we're going to talk about. Uh, Yes, the information I gathered, it is evidence-based, it has been studied, it has been examined in longitudinal studies, but it's just really important to know that if you've experienced this or if someone you know has experienced it, it doesn't mean that they will indefinitely experience or go through some of the consequences that we're going to talk about. Uh, It's just that the likelihood is higher. It's just that they've found a correlation for these things happening. And thankfully, I mean, there's so many resources and tips for helping to curb the negative impacts that can come from being a survivor of teen dating violence. And we're going to chat about some of those things at the end. So definitely stick around. And also this topic is just, it's really special to me uh, because first and foremost, I experienced teen dating violence. And as an adult now, educating on this topic, it's just so important to me, uh, not only to just educate the young people on healthy relationships, but also to bring awareness to adults who can be such crucial support systems in young people's lives. So to get right into it, let's define teen dating violence. We define this as a pattern of behavior where a teen uses either physical, verbal, psychological, sexual, or digital abuse, or even stalking to establish and maintain power and control over their partner and their partner's personal life. And we have echoed time and time again that power and control is the main motivation to abuse a partner. We do have a previous episode that is a fantastic 101 on teen dating violence. Uh, We go over all the different types of manipulation, what the different forms of abuse can look like. So I really encourage you to check that out to learn more about Um, teen dating violence as a whole. I'll have that episode listed below in the description just to make it easier to locate in our catalog. And another little caveat is that although teen dating violence, it's extremely similar to domestic violence in a lot of ways, but it's important that we don't use the same framework of understanding when looking at the abusive teen relationship dynamic because 
They are different in uh, many different ways. And actually, an article published by the National Institute of Justice discussed some current research on teen dating violence and concluded that there were three key differences between adult and teen dating relationships. The first one being abusive teen relationships typically lack the same unequal power dynamic found in adult intimate partner violence relationships. And quickly, I just want to mention that they were looking into heteronormative couples uh, where it is female victimized and male perpetrated. So to go on, Adolescent girls are not often dependent on their partner for financial support and do not typically have children to provide for and protect. And we know that in domestic violence relationships, if you've listened to any of our previous episodes, such as uh, our coercive control episode, dynamics of domestic violence, they'll all be mentioned below if you want to check them out. But in all those domestic violence episodes, you know, we talk a lot about how financial abuse can come into play, how a partner not having access to resources or, um, you know, not being in a job for a long time, it, it creates a dependence on their partner or on their abuser. And so especially when it comes time, if they do want to leave, all of those things make it a lot more challenging. And we also discussed a lot, too, how the children can unfortunately be used as leverage in a lot of different ways to manipulate a partner. The second key difference is that teens have limited experience with romantic relationships and negotiating conflict. Lastly, teen relationships are more readily affected by the influence of peers. And so another big distinction there, right, because we know a lot of domestic violence relationships often happen kind of in isolation uh, or they kind of, you know, move away from the influence of other people because that adult abuser wanting that power and control, the less people they have around to kind of step in, provide support or, you know, tell that victim survivor like, hey, they shouldn't be treating you like that, the more likely it is that, you know, that abuser is not going to be able to maintain that same level of power and control. And so that's the, the last key distinction that they kind of found within that research. But regardless of the differences between domestic violence, teen dating violence, we know that teen dating violence, it's a serious and very pervasive issue. Statistics show that annually, 25% of teens report having experienced relationship abuse, and that number is unfortunately higher for teens in the LGBTQ community. And I think oftentimes as well, teen relationship abuse, it tends to get maybe overlooked or downplayed. Uh, you know, there's a lot of beliefs out there that kind of just don't serve this cause in the best way. I mean, first off, there's a lot of times where adults might look at young relationships, um, healthy or unhealthy ones, and just think, oh, you know, this is puppy love. Uh, you're not old enough to know what love is yet. And honestly, I think that is doing such a disservice to young people because, I mean, teens are in this really important developmental stage. They're learning about intimate partner relationships, even if those relationships, they don't involve physical intimacy, um, but they're still navigating what it's like to have emotional intimacy, how to set boundaries and what relationships look like overall, like what our roles are, what the dynamic is. And so I actually pulled this quote from um, an interesting article. It was published in the Cornell Chronicle, but teens are experiencing their first romantic relationships. So it could be that aggressive relationships are skewing their view of what's normal and healthy and putting them on a trajectory for future victimization. In this regard, we found evidence that teen relationships can matter a great deal over the long run. So 
I just think it's really important that for us as adults, we keep these things in mind, right? We keep in mind that they're in a critical developmental stage. Uh, we keep in mind that, you know, we have to be a non-judgmental kind of supportive platform for them to come, for them to discuss things, for them to open up. Because if we do have this approach that, you know, oh, that breakup, it doesn't matter. You're young. You're going to go through plenty of partners or you don't even know what love is yet. You know, that, that wasn't even a real relationship. All we're doing is setting the tone that that young person can't come to us for support or advice because we don't put value on those relationships. So God forbid down the line, if they do end up in an unhealthy or abusive relationship and maybe they have questions or they're feeling afraid, you know, if that's the way that they were being spoken to about their, you know, maybe healthy relationships, then it's going to make it that much harder to think they can come to you for support when they really, really need it, right? Again, in those times where they could be experiencing some type of dating abuse. So, so important that as adults, um, we're not quick to dismiss teen relationships, but uh, step down from my soapbox on that. Let's go ahead and we'll talk about some of the immediate impact that being in a teen dating violence relationship can have. And when I say immediate, these are effects that can occur during the relationship or throughout the remaining teenage and young adult years. The first impact that can happen is that individual, that victim survivor, doing poorly in school, first and foremost. And that one right there, I just want to kind of like unpack that a tiny bit. Um, you know, just thinking about a teen who is maybe still in or left a violent or abusive relationship. If they have anxiety, if they are worried about their safety, worried about retaliation, uh, maybe they've been threatened, but regardless, there's, there's so many big feelings for a young person that can come out of being in an unhealthy or violent relationship. So with all of that on their mind and navigating how they're, you know, supposed to be processing and coping with some things that may have happened to them, of course, school is going to kind of fall by the wayside, right? Worrying about studying and assignments, a lot of those things, it's just going to be too much for them, right? As they're trying to really focus on themselves and quite possibly their safety. To piggyback off of that, um, also, maybe them not attending school due to feeling unsafe. I used to work at the local high school out in Tahoe. Um, I was teaching there. I also had um, a little kind of like office area in the counseling center in case, you know, students wanted to come and talk to me. And a lot of the times I'd be working with, you know, other counselors because if anything happened, let's say there was a student that was abused or assaulted by a classmate, right? Or an ex or a current partner, then we would have to navigate with them. Like, how is this child still going to feel safe coming to school? Because they deserve to be able to go pursue their education and not have to worry about their physical safety, not worry about um, an ex or current partner who could bring them harm. And one of the things that we would do would, you know, help them navigate um, their walking routes, right? Like how they're going to get to and from this class. This is a typical place where they may see that perpetrator. We don't want that to happen. So, you know, what routes are we going to have the perpetrator take first and foremost? And then what routes were safe and comfortable for that victim survivor? Maybe, you know, we can put a plan in place, a safety plan that they walk with a friend or they're dismissed a few 
seconds or a minute or so early from class. That way there's no one in the hallways um, and they're not going to bump into this person. So yeah, school is a huge one. Um, obviously it can have a huge impact on that victim survivor, especially if they are in classes or go to the same school as that perpetrator. The next effect is possibly them going on to drink, binge drinking, smoking, using drugs, or even engaging in unhealthy diet behaviors, including taking diet pills or laxatives or vomiting to lose weight. So a lot of these unhealthy coping skills that, you know, first they can come out of just trying to process and, and you know, or not have to process what's going on. Um, usually, you know, with like drinking, drugs, smoking, things like that in the picture, it's a way to kind of coat over those feelings, right? Or kind of check out for a little bit. We don't have to be present, you know, or in this sober state of mind where we're thinking about all these things and worrying about it. So a lot of that could come into play. And also some of the disordered eating, such as, you know, the diet pills, laxative, things like that. Um, a lot of that too can come because of a need for power and control, right? Because again, we go back, the motivation for these abusive relationships is that the abuser wants power and control, aka they're taking power and control away from their victim. So perhaps after the relationship is ended, or, you know, if if their abuser doesn't really like control eating and anything like that within their day-to-day -day life, like one of the things a survivor can control is their eating habits. How much, how little. A lot of disordered eating, it comes out of that desire for having control. The next immediate effect that can happen is unwanted pregnancy or unplanned pregnancy or getting an STD. Next, we have suicidal ideations and reporting feelings of hopelessness and sadness. To think about these relationships, right? These are patterns. Um, these are things that are pretty consistent. We've also had a whole episode talking about the cycle of violence, how these things occur. Please go listen to it, get all the full details. But when you're in the cycle of violence, we start off like any relationship does in the honeymoon phase where everything is great. Usually they're overly romantic. They are, you know, kind of too good to be true. This perfect sense of who we are and how we're going to treat each other. We're acting our best selves. So that way, by the time the second stage of the cycle comes around the tension phase where we start to kind of notice something feels off or some of the things they do and say just kind of start to feel icky or wrong or just kind of ring our alarm bells a little bit. Um, you know, usually we're dismissing a lot of that because we've had all this beautiful honeymoon period with them and we know they can be this great person. We know they are capable of like treating you super well. By the time the third stage comes in, the abuse phase, you know, we've, we've done a lot to kind of like tune out our own instincts, right? Or just think like, no, this isn't who they are. They've shown me this beautiful side of them and I know they're capable of doing that. And so that cycle can kind of just keep going around and around and around, right? Because usually after abuse occurs, we go back into the honeymoon phase. There's apologies, the baby, I'm sorry, I lost my mind. I can't believe I did that. I would never hurt you. You know, maybe they get the bouquet of flowers. They get, you know, beautiful poems written via text message every single morning sent to them. And it's like, we're back in this honeymoon phase and everything's great. And that was a one-time thing. And sooner or later, the cycle continues. So a survivor can feel very trapped in this. Uh, and, and because there's so many other layers of manipulation and coercion going on, again, go listen to the full teen dating violence episode, get the full picture. 
But because there's so much um, kind of working at once, yeah, it could feel like, you know, you're trapped in this. Um, And I know personally, like, I have felt that way in my teen dating violence relationship that I was in. It really felt like I kind of had nowhere to go. Like, I had no way out. Like, I couldn't leave this person. And so it was just navigating, like, how am I going to deal with this? How am I staying safe? Um, What am I going to do to, like, get through day to day? Like, it really felt stuck. And so with that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of young people that can feel like this is kind of a hopeless situation. Like they don't have options. They don't have resources. They don't know what to do. And again, especially if they don't have like supportive adults in their life that they can talk to about this, then that really just adds a whole nother layer of kind of feeling trapped and hopeless. That's why I took my moment to get up on my soapbox earlier about that. Um, but yeah, a lot of negative feelings, right. Can come up in some pretty dark and, um, dangerous feelings. And I just want to say if there's anyone out there that is feeling that way, or if you know someone that could be feeling that way, uh, please reach out for support. I have a lot of different, um, suicide prevention resources below. Absolutely check them out, utilize whatever you need to, but there's a lot of support for you out there. The next immediate effect that can happen is perhaps developing a negative body image or becoming uncomfortable with their sexuality. Um, So developing a negative body image, this can come from a lot of different external sources. Maybe they were being put down or humiliated or shamed because of their body type. And let's face it, I think, especially lately, you know, it's pretty obvious that in our American beauty culture, we often use people's bodies as trends. Like that is pervasive right now, right? Um, We're kind of in the wake of this whole new trajectory of beauty standards where now the Kardashians are reversing some surgeries they've had and losing all this weight. And I've seen headline after headline after headline of heroin chic is back, which I don't even have to the time to unpack how damaging and just like icky it is to treat people's bodies as trends like that. Um, But we see that often, right? And that's not just something happening now with that whole thing. Uh, This is something that's been ongoing, right? So there's already so much pressure for young people, young teenagers, especially young women to fit into certain body types or try desperately on an unattainable um, path to try to fit into a certain body type. And so if their partner kind of brings shame, right, or comments on that, um, we know that humiliation and put downs and a lot of that verbal abuse is really common in young relationships. So, you know, to hear like, oh, you have like a lot of belly fat or, oh, you know, like I, I really love, um, let's just say for example's sake, like I love Kim K's body. Um, you know, you look like nothing like her, like whatever it sounds like, right. That could just be so damaging for a young person to hear that. Um, and really easy for that to really make its way into their minds and, you know, really dampen their self-esteem about who they are. And then also the sexuality piece, like becoming uncomfortable with their sexuality, a lot of that could just come out of, you know, if they are being put down or shamed about their body type, right? And and feeling uncomfortable within their own skin. Um, but also too, like let's say if there is, unfortunately, like sexual abuse going on in that relationship, maybe they are being coerced, forced, manipulated, pushed into doing some sexual acts with their partner that they don't want to do, that they're not comfortable with, that they did not consent to, 
then yeah, this is going to create a really confusing um, and really profound effect on their sense of self, their sense of self-worth, and their sexuality. Lastly, they may become overly dependent on others and not achieving their own independence. So if they're perpetrator has kind of set up a dynamic where, you know, they're getting their victim survivor to really rely in them. Maybe, yeah, part of the put down process or part of their abusive process is, you know, telling their victim that um, they're stupid, that their ideas are stupid, that, you know, they can't really think for themselves. It doesn't work out if they try to think for themselves. They never get it right. They never um, are smart enough. So if that becomes a narrative that they are hearing all of the time, then that's going to be something that kind of impacts them in their decision-making, right? If there is things like gaslighting going on, where that victim is constantly kind of questioning like, wait, didn't I hear that right? I swore that's what they said, but now they're telling me that's not the case at all. So now I'm questioning my memory. I'm questioning my reality. And I'm questioning like, do I trust myself? Because I apparently have been getting a lot of things wrong lately. So all that can come into play in deepening that reliance and dependence on their partner, right? Thinking like, I can't trust myself, but you know, I'll trust them. Um, They can make the decisions because they tell me often that I'm not good at this. So thank goodness I have them here. And that can cascade even further into young adulthood and especially even going forward. And so now let's just go ahead and chat about how being in abusive teen relationships can affect someone further down the road into adulthood. First, since this can be obviously a traumatic experience at such a pivotal time, being a survivor of teen dating violence can actually lead to health issues down the line in adulthood, such as heart disease, obesity, higher cortisol levels, just to name a few. And this might sound kind of like out in left field, like, whoa, you know, how does that correlate? How would one cause the other? Um, And I actually want to reference another episode we did covering the ACE or Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And if you've not heard of this, this research, it's fascinating um, because it discusses how traumatic or, or adverse experiences in childhood can bring upon so many issues down the road, either mentally or physically. So please go check that out. That is backed by um, decades, just decades of research. It's, it's really mind blowing. And I think it can really help create kind of a deeper context for this conversation in general, how trauma, especially earlier on in life can have, you know, some health issues and lifelong impacts. The next long-term effect can be entering into violent relationships in adulthood. So a study done with teen dating violence survivors showed that they were two to three times more likely to enter into a violent relationship in adulthood. And to deconstruct this, let's think about it in a sense of if someone's only had unhealthy or violent relationships, especially in young formative years, and if all they're seeing is unhealthy or abusive relationships, then that is their normal, right? Perhaps they were raised in a household where they witnessed and experienced domestic violence or, you know, the kinds of things that they are exposing themselves to in the media shows, you know, more toxic relationship behaviors and more unhealthy relationships. Because although, you know, media doesn't just represent toxic relationships um, at the forefront, we know that there's a lot of really mixed messaging in media when it comes to relationships and healthy ones and what they actually 
look and feel like. So if they've never had or seen or experienced a healthy relationship, if they think the unhealthy relationships they were in are in fact healthy, then yeah, that's going to be their normal, right? You don't know what you don't know. And so perhaps they're going to enter into those violent relationships in the future. The next issue down the road is perhaps issues with establishing intimacy with a partner. Um, So yeah, that can come out of possible sexual abuse that has occurred. That could come out of humiliation or verbal abuse and being spoken to and being talked down to and insulted because of their bodies or who they are, which can create a lot of issues with self-confidence and body image. And another thing to mention too, is that perhaps, you know, if they were in dangerous and violent relationships, the idea of intimacy was probably pretty scary. Um, you know, how to get close to that person, how not to set them off. Um, you know, the closer I am, maybe the more uh, physical abuse could occur, right? Getting closer in proximity to them. All of these things and many more reasons why can come into play that can cause issues establishing that intimacy with other partners. The next effect is maybe challenges developing a personal value system. Um, Again, you know, if you were kind of needing to change yourself all the time to fit into what your partner liked, um, what their values were, going along with that even sometimes, again, just for self-preservation, not wanting to cause an argument. And so over time, if they really kind of dismissed their own value system, it could be really hard just to figure out their own, right? While they're trying to figure out their identity and all of that after um, they kind of get that power and control back after that relationship's over. Next is kind of the same thing, but difficulty establishing an adult identity. Um, And it really kind of just plays into everything we just spoke about in the last one. Just again, difficulty kind of finding yourself, navigating who you are. If you've had to change yourself time and time again, or had to fit a certain role to keep a partner happy or keep yourself safe, and then moving forward, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a lot to try to discover in yourself, especially like starting late into your adulthood. Next is some of those negative coping skills we talked about earlier. So perhaps, you know, continuing to drink, to smoke, to use drugs, um, to engage in disordered eating after the relationship's over, after, you know, we're going into adulthood here. A lot of that could be trauma response, coping skills that we hang on to, again, just in order to kind of sometimes numb those other feelings or have that sense of power and control. And lastly, again, we mentioned this in kind of the immediate effects, but adults could experience depression, anxiety, and even suicidal ideation from some of the residual trauma, um, the triggers that can occur, and perhaps just not embarking on a path to healing, whatever that looks like for that person. So again, there's a lot of resources below for mental health, for um, suicide prevention. Please, please go check those out. So before I share some considerations on how to support a teen dating violence victim or survivor or to help lessen or eliminate some of these negative consequences, let's first discuss like how we can recognize that this is going on. So for teenagers, right, that might be in a relationship that they don't know, like, is this healthy? Some of this might feel weird. Here is some common red flags. First, if they are checking your cell phone, social media, or email without permission, or maybe even like demanding to have your passwords to be able to look at things and go into your accounts. And I'll just say too, like that demanding to see your password, it might not 
sound like scary or violent or aggressive. It might be like, well, don't you love me? Like, don't you trust me? Like, can't I trust you? Like, if we were in a good, healthy relationship, you'd let me have your password. You'd let me read all your messages, right? Um, so there's a lot of ways that they can look and sound like, but essentially, if this person's screening your calls, going through your stuff, um, messaging people, kind of, you know, maybe starting issues or arguments with friends online or texting on your behalf, this is pretty controlling, right? And that's taking a lot of control away from your own personal life, from your personal phone and your personal accounts. Next is constantly putting you down. Um, you know, there's a huge difference between like some playful jesting and, you know, kind of like being able to laugh at each other and, you know, ourselves. But if someone's putting you down, um, you know, they really are making you feel less than, they're making you feel unworthy if they do this a lot. And if they even give you excuses like, oh, it's not a big deal, you're being sensitive when you try to talk to them about it, just a red flag, definitely something to keep in mind. Next, we have extreme jealousy or insecurity. Oh, the amount of times I have taught in middle school and high school, and we've had this big conversation, you know, is jealousy love? And I would get a lot of mixed reactions from my students, you know, well, yeah, if someone's jealous, it means they really love and care about me. Others would be like, um, no, I don't like that at all. That does not make me feel loved and cared for. And then I would go on to say, you know, like as human beings, we're, we naturally have jealousy, right? And I always use the example, like if someone came in right now and just won the lottery and we're going on like a beach vacation and had a brand new, beautiful Chanel bag, like, of course, it'd be like, oh my God, I'm so jealous, right? Normal, healthy, natural. But it, let's say my partner is, um, maybe they're in like a new club on campus. When they're there, I know there's like people of the opposite sex that are going to be there too. So there's different like, you know, girls or guys within that club that they're going to that they may be talking to while I'm not there. So maybe I start getting super jealous about that. Like they're doing things without me or they're talking to the opposite sex. And maybe I start really making it a problem for them to go and actually do or enjoy that activity. I'm encouraging them now to like not even go. Or maybe I'm just really starting to impact uh, their time there, right? Like by hanging around when I'm not supposed to be and just really anything to disrupt that because my jealousy is getting in the way. If jealousy is being used like that, um, then this is no longer healthy. That is not from a place of love. Again, that's from a place of control. And that's a really big thing, I think, especially for young people to digest and really think about um, when that jealousy does cross the line. The next warning sign is having an explosive temper, um, being able to, you know, kind of fly off the handle or but just having, you know, kind of a scary or aggressive way of um, getting angry. Definitely a big red flag. Next is isolating you from family or friends. This is absolutely one that I experienced um, in my teen dating violence relationship. That was like number one. I had a huge friend group. This person did not have very many friends. They were in a pretty hard circumstance before we had met, um, lost a lot of you know close friends to them. But when they came into my life, everyone got along at first and I was like, this is awesome. And then slowly over time, as things started to get like a little more unhealthy, um, I noticed pretty quickly that like all of a sudden there were these issues between my boyfriend and my friends, just kind of planting little seeds, right? Of like little points of contention, which I didn't really care about so much. Um, but the real tipping point was my best friend at the time. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time together and she was like 
really insightful um, when it came to, you know, how he was treating me, how, you know, suddenly it's like, you know, I don't like the way he's talking to you. Like, that's, that's not okay. Like, does he talk to you like that often? Once he knew that this could be someone who could challenge the power and control he was gaining over me, he really started to make an issue with her. Um, so really kind of started beef whenever he could, he'd get under her skin. She would react because she was kind of fed up with him at this point, just for how he was treating me in general. So once he kind of started coming at her, it was like, no, 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 I'm not going to take this at all. Um, and so, yeah, suddenly they were just like in kind of like turf wars, like they both were not getting along and he would kind of start to whisper in my ear, right? Because there was so much manipulation, coercion going on that like, dude, I can't believe, like, you still call her your best friend? How can you do that? Like, she's trying to break us up. We love each other. We're meant to be together. And, you know, here's your jealous friend. Just because she doesn't have a boyfriend, she's over here, you know, trying to, like, ruin our relationship. Like, that's not okay. And at the time, again, I was so manipulated, so coerced. Like, I started to kind of, like, believe those things. It started to, like, almost make sense. Um, and, yeah, so I started limiting time with her because, you know, I was living with this partner at the time. After not very long of a time, you know, suddenly it was just kind of him and I, and my friends weren't really in the picture anymore. And that's when things really ramped up and got definitely more scary um, in that relationship. So isolation, it's huge. And we say it and say it and say it, but violence thrives in the silence. The less people there are around, uh, the more easy it is for that perpetrator to abuse their victim. Next is making any false accusations in the relationship. So if they're accusing you of cheating, of lying, even when you're not, um, this is just like an unhealthy path to be on. Obviously, there's a lack of trust there, but it could be used as a form of manipulating you as well. Also, mood swings, another red flag here on the list. So if they go from being like cool, calm, and collected to super duper angry, or if you just notice like big shifts in how they handle things, um, their temper, their aggression, just be mindful of that for your safety. The next red flag indicator, um, this one's pretty obvious, but if they are physically harming you in any way, even if they insist it's a joke, or if they tell you it's not a big deal, or if they tell you like, well, you deserved it because I only did that to you because you said that to me, right? It does not matter. There's, there's no justification. There's no excuse for them to abuse you, um, especially physically. And so if they are harming you in any way, please utilize some of the resources below or, you know, check in with someone that you trust, an adult that you trust, have a conversation that is really, really, really important. The next one is threatening suicide and or self-harm if you leave them. Uh, and this is so common in teen relationships. I cannot even stress how common it is. And this is another thing that I experienced in that same relationship I just chatted about. When I met him, he, you know, had come off of using drugs. That's why, again, he like had very limited people in his life because he either wrote off people that were still on drugs or people had written him off because he was on drugs for so long and they just like, you know, set that boundary. We can't be friends anymore. But regardless, um, you know, he was clean when we met and when we did start having like really violent, really rocky times where I would say like, I can't do this anymore and start like almost trying to get the courage to leave him. Um, 
you know, one of the things he would say was like, well, if you leave me, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have nowhere to go. Well, I'm just going to be homeless, I guess. And then, you know, if I'm out in the streets, I'll probably just start doing drugs again. And I'll probably just end up overdosing and dying out in the streets alone and da, 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 da. I mean, he would just go on. And at that time, you know, I was someone, I'm like, I don't want to harm my partner. That's not who I am. And that threat and him telling me that, like, if you leave me, this is going to happen. Yeah, I felt absolutely stuck in that situation. I felt like, you know, regardless of how awful this is, like, I don't want him harming himself or going back on drugs or him overdosing. Like, I don't want that on my shoulders, right? Even though, like, would that have been my fault if any of those things did happen? Like, no, right? That's obviously a choice that they're making. But at the time, and especially being young, like, that is such an impactful threat. And again, happens too often. Um, but yeah, that is just a, a huge, huge red flag right there. Next, we have possessiveness. So again, that kind of taps into like jealousy a little bit and obviously control, right? If they're very possessive over you, um, if they don't want you hanging out with other people, even if they are friends or family members, that could be a little bit of a red flag, right? Dipping into that isolation piece. Another red flag is telling you what to do, maybe what to wear or um, what to say around certain people or like don't talk around my friends, right? Anything like that just that could just seem controlling um, and just making you have to like act different than you would in your day-to-day -day normal life. And lastly, pressuring you or forcing you to engage in any sexual activities that you are not comfortable with. And I know that that, again, that pressure, that um, coercion piece, that's not always going to sound or feel like violent, aggressive, or scary, right? It can. There's absolutely some instances where that does happen, right? There's threats and there's, um, you know, forcible control into kind of doing things. But a lot of times in teen relationships, it becomes more manipulation, right? It's talking about like, well, come on, like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, well, everyone's doing it after prom, right? So yeah, it's like kind of just expected. It's normal. I don't know what the big deal is for you. Or, you know, this person's doing this with their boyfriends. And so, yeah, like, that's just what's normal. Like, you're not going to do that with me. Um, you know, everyone's going to make fun of us. Everyone's going to talk about it. Like, there's just so many different ways where, especially the influence of peers or other people can step into play um, and, and really just create an environment where people are maybe pressured into doing things they don't want to do. Um, and so that's why I'll just say to any like possible teens out there listening or even adults, right, that are learning about this, um, boundaries. They're so important. They are so important to start and set your boundaries at a young age, right? Like, what are you comfortable with? What are you not comfortable with? What will you put up with? What will you not tolerate? Um, and if you start setting this early and you really, really continually reinforce your boundaries, over time, it gets a lot easier to set those boundaries. But especially in a relationship and when it comes to any sexual activities, whatever it is, even if it's something as simple as like physical touch, PDA, like holding hands or intimacy in that way, like you have the absolute right to decide what you're comfortable with and go at your own pace. So now um, let's look at it through the lens of adults, right? Those were all really good things for teens to keep in mind in their relationships. But as an adult, obviously, we're not going to see, hear, and feel all those things if we're not in the relationships ourselves. So here are just some signs that an adult might notice if a young person is in a possible abusive, unhealthy, or violent relationship. And a lot of these are, they're going to kind of go hand in hand with, you know, the red flags we just talked about for youth, but 
Number one is that maybe they're becoming isolated from friends, family, um, and other peers. So again, that isolation piece, kind of limiting their little bubble. Perhaps they're losing interest in activities that used to be enjoyed or becoming a little bit withdrawn, right? So kind of going back a little bit to the conversation earlier, if they're really stressed, if they have anxiety, if they're afraid for their safety, um, then that's going to be their main focus, right? Like other hobbies of theirs, schoolwork, all of that kind of stuff is going to fall by the wayside because they are looking to self-protect, right? And just try to keep themselves safe and focus on that. Maybe you'll see them apologizing and making excuses for the abusive behavior of their dating partner. Again, I know as a teen, I was there. Um, But yeah, maybe they're like, oh, you know, like they're just in a really bad mood or, you know, I caught them on a really bad day. Whatever it looks and sounds like, right? If this is especially becoming commonplace that they have some, and especially unexcusable behaviors, but their partner is now making excuses, downplaying, minimizing that behavior, that's a huge red flag. Um, You know, because we know that a lot of minimization occurs in the relationship as well. So if they are having things minimized enough for them, uh, they will sometimes in return start minimizing that behavior in general, even to other people, right, who might be around them. Next is if you know they're being called names and demeaned by a dating partner, especially in front of you or other people, huge red flag, right, for verbal abuse going on. Or if you notice them having a dating partner who is very jealous of attention from other guys or girls, um, or even spending time, again, with like friends and family when they're not there, we know that jealousy piece is huge. Next is them having a dating partner who maybe breaks objects, hurts animals, threatens people, or threatens things the victim cares about, or defaces property of the victim. Any kind of violent behavior or harmful behavior this is really an indicator that this person is able um, to get physically aggressive if they get angry. And that sets a really scary precedent, right, for the future. Because that victim might think, you know, if they're able to, you know, harm that animal or um, punch the wall like that or break this, whatever my personal property is, if they're able to do that when they're angry about this, God forbid if I make them angry, right? Like what can they do to me? Those are really dangerous red flags that we should really pay attention to. Perhaps this young person you know in your life maybe has bruises or injuries that cannot be satisfactorily explained. Um, So yeah, obviously, you know, this could be an indicator of things going on. And I'm not going to say that young people with like a bruise somewhere, um, it's immediately an indicator they're being abused by their partner. Like, no, Uh, they could be playing sports, doing a whole realm of different, you know, silly young teen, semi-dangerous activities. I know me and my brothers were like that. We were hurting ourselves all the time doing like the dumbest things you can imagine. Um, But, you know, if you know this teen is in possibly an unhealthy relationship or maybe dating someone new, you don't really know anything about them yet. And, you know, if this becomes kind of commonplace, right, maybe there's multiple bruises, maybe this is over time, and maybe their um, reasoning why these bruises happened sound just very suspicious and don't quite add up. It's just something to keep in mind, right, as an adult um, and something to kind of maybe just look into or check in with them about. Next is this teen being constantly monitored by a dating partner through phone calls, texts, other people. So maybe this teen kind of has to constantly get up and go take a phone call in the other room, right? And maybe this is constantly happening. Like as soon as their phone goes off, it's their partner 
they have to pick up. So if you notice this going on, or if you notice that maybe, um, you know, this young teen, they're having their partner kind of monitor their accounts. Maybe they're messaging other people um, or screening their phone calls. Huge red flag. It's something to talk with them about. And most importantly, if you just notice a teen who's not acting themselves, just try to get on their level and simply talk to them about what's going on, right? We don't always know. And again, some of these indicators, it may or may not be the case that they're in a violent or unhealthy relationship. Um, but regardless, if, if someone's acting different, it's just so important, right, to check in with that person and see what's going on and what we can do to support. So how can we change the trajectory, right? So teens that are in these unhealthy relationships, they don't adopt maybe these negative coping skills or have these negative impacts into adulthood. Like how do we change this? What can we do about this? First and foremost, prevention is so key. And again, why I got my soapbox earlier about, you know, being a supportive adult, what that looks like. Um, but beyond that, and, and you know, just adults having conversations early with kids and teens about relationships, about the expectations, about what to look out for. Um, that early connection, I'll say too, is it's so critical, right? To like set that stage early on, but also just prevention work. Um, you know, like trying to advocate for healthy relationship education in your schools for your kids, because so much of that is just not happening, right? There's so many schools in the country, in the U.S. here that you know, we don't have that healthy relationship education. When I was doing that, um, like boots on the ground, still out in Tahoe and teaching courses in every single school in Tahoe district, the amount of times I heard from the adults in the room, whether it was, you know, the teacher whose classroom I was lecturing in, the teacher's aides, we had bilingual students, we had students with disabilities. So there was like additional aides in the room, but the number of adults that would come up to me after these classes and lectures and just say like, wow, I'm so happy that like kids are learning this now. Um, I, I can't imagine, like, I wish I had this when I was in high school. And I thought the same way. I was like, yeah, you know, if I had this education in high school, the trajectory of my life could have been a lot different, right? Like a lot of the decisions I made, a lot of the relationships that I got into or put up with, like, it all could have been so much different for me if I had just learned this stuff, right? Um, because again, when you're a teenager, you're learning from peers, you're learning from media, you're learning within the household, which may or may not have the best representations of healthy relationships. So that prevention piece, that's huge. The next thing we can do is, you know, especially if this is already occurring or happening, um, connecting teens with trained advocates that they can speak to directly and, you know, they can gain access to the evidence-based information not only to just learn about unhealthy relationships and what to look out for, but way more importantly, so they can learn the dynamics of a healthy relationship, right? That's way more important to know like what to expect, especially again, if they have kind of no exposure uh, or experience witnessing or knowing what a healthy relationship is. Next is take time to listen to what they have to say without trying to offer advice straight away or especially without criticizing them. When it comes to advocacy, it's never about telling someone what is best for them or this is what you should do. It's absolutely more impactful to empower that person with information, right? To help build their self-esteem and to provide options for support. It's up to that victim survivor, right? 
we don't want to take more power and control away from that person by saying, here's what you need to do. You need to leave that person or you need to go talk to this person. That's pretty controlling, right? And that's the last thing we want to do. We want to make it so they can make the best informed decisions for themselves and be there as like a support system, a sounding board, really whatever they need. Next is that uh, for all the medical professionals out there, screening for teen dating violence can be a really, really impactful thing to do. And this can include prioritizing teen dating violence screenings during clinical visits or developing healthcare-based interventions, responding to adolescents who are possibly already in unhealthy relationships in order to help reduce future health problems in these teens, right? So that's a big one too. If you're a medical professional out there listening, if you're not already doing that, considering that and advocating for that. And lastly, Just remember, if you are a supportive adult for a teen going through this, you do not have to have all of the answers. You do not have to like train yourself in violence prevention. That's what trained professionals are here for, right? Just be open to listening without judgment. And also remember that it is totally okay to say, I don't know, but we can look this up together. Or we can call this hotline together to get some answers or help. That's doing an incredible job, right? And that is so much more deeply respected, especially from teenagers, when an adult is able to just say, like, I actually don't know. I don't want to give you the wrong answer, or I don't want to guide you in the wrong direction, but let's figure this out, right? Or let's see how we can get these answers that we need. So all of that is just really important to keep in mind. Um, That support system is really key. And the wider we kind of cast that net of support, the less negative adverse reactions we're going to have. All of that is just so good to keep in mind. I know we have unpacked so much today in this conversation. (laughs) And again, just with like my, my personal experience with teen dating violence and then, you know, me being so passionate about educating because of those experiences, because there's so many teens that are just trying to figure it out on their own. And that's not always easy. Um, you know, this could have gone on a lot longer. So I'm happy I was able to make it (laughs) as short as I did. But with all of that unpacking, I think it's just a really great time for us to do a little breath work, do a little meditation here. It's not going to be anything fancy. We're not doing any wild techniques. We're just going to do some simple breathing and relaxation. So if you're available to take on this meditation at this time, I encourage you to get into a comfortable seated position. Get into a space where you can just fully relax. And as we're settling into this comfortable space, I just want you to start paying attention to your breath. We're not changing it yet. We're just drawing our attention to our breath. Now I want you to start paying attention to your body. Right now, as we're settling in, do you have tension anywhere? Are you holding stress anywhere? Do you feel any strain or tightness in your shoulders, in your neck? Are you balling up your fists? Are you clenching your jaw? 
And what I want you to do is start taking our meditative breath. So deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Deep breath in, big breath out. And as we're taking these meditative breaths, on every exhale, I want you to just relax different muscles of the body. And you can start with any muscles maybe you identified. Those exhales, you can relax the shoulders, let them sink down. You can unclench your jaw. Maybe loosen and open up your hands. But we're just sending these exhales out and just letting gravity sink us a little deeper into relaxation. And just focus on that rhythmic breathing. Just breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. We may have thoughts, feelings, or worries come up as we're meditating. And if we do, that's okay. Just let it float by. Stay present with your breath. If it helps, find a rhythm in your breathing. Maybe count in your head your inhales and make them the same length as your exhales. Continue to focus on your breathing Notice the rise and fall of your chest and belly as you're taking these deep cleansing breaths. On your next few inhales, I want you to breathe in some kind words for yourself. So with every inhale, compliment yourself. Now on these next few exhales, I want you to let go of something you need to let go of. Maybe it's negative self-talk, maybe it's worry, maybe it's stress. But exhale and just release those feelings. On your next inhale, breathe in all the way. Fill your lungs and hold that breath for a count of three. And a big exhale out. And one more big breath in. Expand your lungs and hold for a count of three. And a big breath out. Release all of that. And this time, if you want to stay in this calm breathing pattern, you can even feel free to pause and continue on with this meditation on your own. 
But if you're ready to come on back, I encourage you to just go back to your normal breathing. Start to wiggle, move around, wake up your body, come back into the room. But I hope that was relaxing and enjoyable. Again, I know we just went through so much um, in that amount of time during this episode. So always important to take care of ourselves, right? And I want to say that if you are in a teen dating violence relationship currently, please just know that you're not alone. Uh, There's nothing that you did or that you are doing to deserve what you're going through. Um, You're not inviting that on yourself. You've done nothing to deserve this. There's no excuse for abuse. And there's so much support out there for you. Again, so much is linked below. You can check out a variety of different hotlines you can call. There's websites with um, anonymous text chats where you can talk to somebody that way. So much material you can just go and look through on your own. So please go ahead and just take advantage of those resources. Also, if you're an adult survivor of teen dating violence, there's so much support for you as well. Um, And lastly, I just want to re-highlight again, there's a lot of suicide prevention support resources below. But I just want to say, um, again, like we mentioned earlier, like prevention's key, awareness is super key, the education is so key on what to look for and look out for. And so you being here, listening to this episode today, learning more, and perhaps checking out the other episodes I mentioned as well, just to bring all the context into frame and get like a really good understanding of this. This is so critical. And so thank you so much for taking time to learn about these things. We really appreciate it. And we hope you will join us for our next conversation.